Today we'll be looking at Acts chapter 4, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to be focusing mainly on verse 8 through 12, but I want to uh, read starting in verse 1 just to build the context of where we're going to be. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Peter and John have just healed the lame man, and these events in Acts chapter 4 are the events that follow. Beginning in verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus' name the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and they put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power? Or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for the benefits done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you, as we've just sang, Lord, we pray that this text would become alive to us, that the power of your word would be felt in this room, that we would be transformed as we see your word. Lord, I pray that you would use me as your humble servant to present this text in all of its clarity. We pray this in your name, amen. Amen. As we begin our Christmas season, as we celebrate Christmas, there's really two things that is central to our celebration. We celebrate the nature of Christ's coming and the purpose of Christ's coming. We celebrate the nature, that's the the virgin birth. We celebrate uh, God incarnate, that he could be fully God and fully man. We celebrate all of these prophecies that surround the coming of Christ. And we also celebrate the purpose of Christ's coming. Born that man no more may die. He came to save the lost. Jesus himself said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Christ came as our way of salvation. For many, many years, the nature of Christ's coming has been under attack, that he was born of a virgin, 
really the, the biggest controversy in the early church was the deity of Christ, his nature, being fully God and fully man. Really the first several hundred years of church history centered around that controversy. But in recent times, it is the purpose of Christ's coming that's come under attack. And that attack has presented itself as religious pluralism. Religious pluralism. This is the idea that all of these religions all have something good to offer. All of them are, are credible and acceptable. They all, have, they all are equally valid. And the purpose of Christ's coming to be the one and only savior of the world has turned into one of many saviors of the world where the purpose of Christmas has been diluted by all these other religions that celebrate. Religious pluralism has seen an accelerated growth in recent years due to the postmodern thinking where people would say there is no absolute truth. There isn't just one way. You can't claim to be uh, absolutely right. They argue that they would say there's this proverbial mountain that has all of these trails, and all the trails lead to the same destination. Any message of any faith is valid and an acceptable message, unless, they would say, your message claims to be the only one. If you claim to have exclusive rights to the way to eternity, that's the only message that we won't tolerate. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is such a message. We've, we've read it already in our text. The gospel of Jesus Christ is exclusive because it claims that the only way to God is through Christ. And this religious pluralism of our day is growing faster and stronger daily. And there seems to be no greater time where religious pluralism is celebrated than at Christmas when the true nature of Christ's coming is really diminished. We could call Christmas a coexist holiday. I'm sure you've seen the, the coexist bumper sticker where are, there's all these symbols of faith. The, the, the origin of that bumper sticker was to present all of these different faiths as equally valid, showing that Christianity is just one of many acceptable religions. Our world has turned Christmas into this type of holiday. Oprah Winfrey is, is well known for her uh, promotion of religious pluralism. She might not affect you directly, but I'm sure she has affected those around you. And she says, while Christianity is a valid way to achieve high states of spirituality, it must not be considered a unique way or a correct way. On another occasion, she said, I'm a, I'm a free-thinking Christian who believes in my way, but I don't believe it's the only way with six billion people on the planet. Maybe those thoughts that she's presented haven't affected you, but I imagine that in time, this idea of religious pluralism, of there being multiple ways, of many ways, uh, might try to infect your family. It might try to infect this church, maybe through social media or, or some other medium. There is no better time than the Christmas season to reaffirm the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That he came to seek and save the lost, and that he is the only solution to the sinfulness of man, born to give us second birth. So as we look at our passage today, Acts chapter four, we find Peter standing before the Sanhedrin, and he presents this sermon, and we'll see here in this text, he gives three exclusive characteristics of Jesus' ministry. And this will teach us the exclusive purpose of Christ's coming, something that is so necessary for us to affirm this Christmas season. If you have your uh, bulletins, you'll find in the little food for thought section uh, the outline of my sermon. We're going to look first in verse 8 through 12, and we'll see that Jesus alone has power to heal. In verse 11, we'll see Jesus alone is prophecy fulfilled. And in verse 12, we'll see that Jesus alone provides salvation. These aren't my own thoughts. This isn't my hobby horse. This is what the text says. These are things that should fill us with excitement and joy as we celebrate Christmas, as, as we see the true meaning of why Christ came. This sermon, uh, verse 8 through 12, is one of the most incredible sermons in all of Scripture as it presents the purpose and nature of who Christ is. But if we take this from uh, verse 1 and really build the context, it really helps us see how dynamic this sermon is. So I want to back up and understand how Acts 4 fits into the chronology of where we're at. And I, I think this will help the passage really come to life for us. So here we are in Acts chapter 4. And if we back up just two months, two months before the events of Acts chapter 4, we find Peter in a courtyard, just feet away from where he is in Acts chapter 4. He's in a courtyard outside of the, this council, this council of Sanhedrin. He's warming his hands by a fire, and a servant girl approaches him and, and says, aren't you with him? Aren't you with Jesus Christ? You know the story. And he denies him. Two months before this sermon was preached, that event took place almost in the exact same place. Jesus, at, at that time, was, was on the other side of the wall in the court of the Sanhedrin. He was on trial, and as you guys know, he was put to death, securing the salvation of mankind, two months before Acts chapter 4 took place. Jesus was killed on Passover, and in Acts chapter 1, we read that he was appearing to the people over a period of 40 days. So just to, just to get an idea of what's going on, you have Passover, a Jewish holiday. You have Jesus on earth appearing to uh, 500 men and his disciples for these 40 days. And then you have Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Pentecost takes place exactly 50 days after Passover. So we have a good time reference of what's going on in this period. 50 days and 40 of those days, Jesus was with them. And in Acts chapter 2, during Pentecost, we read, the Lord was adding to the num their number day by day, those who were being saved. So we have Pentecost, then Peter heals a lame man. R days after Pentecost, pro probably the, the following day, Peter, as he's entering into the temple, heal heals the lame man. Again, a story you're probably familiar with, walking and leaping and praising God, and, 
and there's this big commotion, and the church is just growing rapidly. Just um, imagine this scene. You have, our text says, 5,000 men added to the church. Two months, and you have 5,000 men being added to the church. Some say that, that this would probably be about 15,000 people who were added to the church, including women and children. So you have this massive movement going on in this little city of Jerusalem. And I've been there. I know how small the, these boundaries would have been. So you have 15,000 people who are making this um, radical change in this area. And it certainly would have caught the attention of the Jewish leaders. Because as Peter was standing and proclaiming this good news to them, they had him arrested. And that brings us to our passage this morning. Just two months before this, Christ was crucified. And now Peter is standing with, with all of the boldness in the world, proclaiming what we see before us today. Peter is standing in front of a group of men known as the Sanhedrin. Um, these, this group is identified later on as the Sanhedrin. We've been studying in Matthew about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin was a group that was mainly comprised of Sadducees. These were the religious liberals of the day. These were the ones we remember. We, we studied this. They denied the resurrection. They denied the sovereignty of God. They only held to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. These were the high priests. These were the governing leaders of the day. They were the ones who really could make things happen. And they didn't want anyone to tell them they were wrong, especially someone who was going to present an exclusive message to them. They had had a Jesus problem that they thought they had resolved. Now suddenly, Peter stands before them, and they ask a really intriguing question that we see in verse 7. They ask, by what power or in what name have you done this? A really interesting question. They're not, they're not asking about the legitimacy of the miracle. In fact, the lame man who they would have known is actually probably standing there with them. They're not saying, did you really do this? They're not even asking why. They don't care why he did it. They want to know what is the source of the power? What is it that is giving you the power to do this? They had already been threatened by this incredibly fast-growing movement, and now they want to know what is behind all this. And so starting in verse 8, Peter begins his sermon with these three exclusive characteristics of Jesus' ministry. And as we consider Peter's response, there's much that we can learn about the nature of the gospel itself, the purpose of Christ's coming, and we can even learn how then do we present this exclusive gospel in an age of religious pluralism, where inclusivity is celebrated. So look, starting in verse 1, we'll see that Jesus alone has power to heal. Look at verse 8. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Now, it's not as if Peter was suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit in this moment. 
This is actually a reference back to Pentecost. This is when the Holy Spirit came in and dwelt believers. It could, it could actually be translated, and Peter, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, having been filled with the Spirit that we read at Pentecost, since that took place, he suddenly had this, this power, this authority to be able to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. An incredible contrast to the Peter we saw standing in the courtyard, afraid of what this servant girl would think of him. He calls them rulers and elders. These are the bigwigs. These are the men of power, those who have authority to, to end the life of Peter. These were the ones who crucified Christ. That's the situation we have before us. Peter's life is at stake as he begins to proclaim what he's about to proclaim. And Peter begins uh, this defense by restating the reason that he's on trial. Verse 9, he says, If we are on trial today for benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well. He's, he's showing the foolishness of the situation. That's what he's doing. He's demonstrating that you've brought me in because I healed a sick man. That's, that's it. That's why he's on trial. It's like being called into the principal's office because you got an A on the exam. It, it's ridiculous. You don't, what, what was wrong with healing a lame man? Maybe the principal is suspicious because he doesn't know how you got the A. He wants to interrogate you to figure out what was the method that you used to get an A on the exam. But Peter kind of comically demonstrates that the issue that he's brought in is actually a good thing. It's the benefit done to a sick man. People normally get in trouble for bad things, for doing wrong. But Peter is, is demonstrating that it's not, you're mad because I helped somebody? But he knew. He knew that they, they, weren't, they weren't there because he helped somebody. They wanted to know where the power came from. What is the source of your power? And it wasn't Peter. Look at what he says in verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Now, Peter, when he said the miracle was done in the name of Jesus, he's not saying that I said Jesus' name and then I performed the miracle. He's showing that name and power are used together so that all the credit goes to Jesus. Even, even in the question that was asked, by what name or in what power, name and power are used synonymously. So when Peter says, I've done, this has been done in the name of Jesus, he's saying the source of the power is Jesus, the Nazarene. And he adds insult to injury. In case they weren't following along, he, he presents really clearly which Jesus he's talking about. He says, Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. Now imagine the scene. The Sanhedrin had just 
put Jesus to death. Remember, they had a Jesus problem. He was, he was starting this movement, and people were following him, so they had him killed. And they want to know what the source of the power is. And suddenly, they realize that they're in trouble because the source of the power is Jesus, and they had Jesus killed. We, we see this all the time in the movies where you have a bad guy who commits a crime and he's walking away excited about what he's done and all of a sudden the hero comes in and you just see his face. I thought I, I, thought I got away with it. And you suddenly realize that there's a problem. Maybe we haven't got away with what we thought we've gotten away with. That's exactly what's happening here. As they're suddenly realizing that this big movement that they thought they had stopped is suddenly growing out of control, not because Peter or John had the power to restart it, but because the source of the power was still Christ himself. Now, we can learn something from Peter here, because Peter he could have easily taken credit for what he did. He could have said, yeah, I, I said Jesus' name, but it was, it was really me. I mean, I, I guess I healed him. I was, the one, I was the one that was present. Wasn't it me? And, and guess what? The people probably would have loved him for it. Yet Peter knows that it, the credit was never for him to take. And we learn something from this as we, uh, each of us, have opportunities to evangelize, as we might have a chance to see a life transformed by the gospel as a result of our uh, own testimony of sharing the good, good news with them. May we never take credit for the transformation of someone's life. It is always the power of God that transforms them. And Peter recognized this. Peter probably could have gotten off the hook a little easier if he would have taken credit for it. But by giving Jesus the credit, he's not only saying, glory be to God, he's saying he knows what this means for the whole group. You know, we might also have the tendency to see transformation in our own life and give credit to a great preacher or a great evangelist for transforming our life. Again, we are deceived into thinking that it's man who has the capability of changing us. It's not. It's God and God alone. The, the great Reformation slogan, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone, fits very well in this message that Peter's giving. So we've seen here that, that Jesus alone has power to heal. And starting in verse 11, we'll see that Jesus alone is prophecy fulfilled. Look at verse 11. Peter says this, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Now, this is a startling claim. Maybe you've uh, asked yourself before, why, why is Jesus called the cornerstone? You know, we sing about this, Christ alone, cornerstone. Why was he called the cornerstone? Maybe you've heard it said that uh, the cornerstone is the most important part of the foundation. Because if the cornerstone is not aligned properly, the rest of the foundation is going to be unaligned, and then the entire building is going to be off. 
So the cornerstone really establishes the foundation that the rest of the structure is built upon. This is the imagery that Peter is using as he describes Christ as the cornerstone, but there's more. There's something much, much bigger in this verse that Peter is alluding to. It's so much more than just Christ as the cornerstone. It's like when uh, your wife says, we need to talk. (laughs) You know she wants to have a conversation, but there's something more there. There's a bigger issue, and that's what Peter's getting at. He's not just saying Christ is the cornerstone. He's alluding to something that's seen throughout the rest of the scripture that develops the theme of cornerstone, and here it's finally brought to fruition in Christ. And I want to demonstrate this through the Old Testament. I'm going to go through several Old Testament passages, and you don't need to turn there. I'll I'll read the scriptures to you. But we see this theme of a cornerstone or a stone building throughout the Old Testament, and we'll see how it culminates in Christ. Isaiah 28, 16, you can write these down if you want, says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, remember Isaiah, prophetic literature. Listen to what God says. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for a foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. So we begin to see uh, this Old Testament picture of some cornerstone, and it says we need to believe in it, and we will not be disturbed. Think about Daniel 2. Daniel 2 is this uh, chapter where um, Daniel is prophesying and he's seeing this statue being built with these four elements. In Daniel 2.34 we read, um, you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. So a stone was coming in and really in crushing the statue. And then listen to the next verse, verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Imagery of a stone that's coming, and, and this is kingdom language, just setting up a kingdom that filled the whole earth. Another one, Zechariah 3, 9, says this, For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day." The removal of iniquity and the stone are seen together in this passage, and I would love to spend more time in in each one of these passages developing how the Old Testament uses the imagery of a stone, Uh, but there's one more I want to look at, Psalm 118.22. This is the passage that Peter is quoting. He's quoting directly from Psalm 118.22, and guess what? Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. It's referring to the Messiah. I love this kind of stuff, where you just see all the Old Testament coming together and climaxing in Christ. Listen to this, Psalm 118, 22. 
The stone which the builder rejects has become the chief cornerstone. By the way, Psalm 118.22 was quoted by Christ himself during the Passion Week, referring to himself. We just studied this in the book of Matthew, Matthew 21.42. Jesus said to them, did you never read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The messianic implications of this theme throughout the Old Testament is crystal clear. And the Sanhedrin, they knew what Peter was talking about. They knew that when he quoted Psalm 118, that he wasn't just saying, Jesus is a cornerstone. They knew that he's referring to this big overarching theme that is seen through all of scripture where there's this desire for one who is a stone, a cornerstone, who is gonna come and take away the iniquities, who is gonna come and be a, set up this kingdom. And Peter's saying in verse 11 that that cornerstone is Christ. He's here, and you missed it. And they also would have known that they were the builders that rejected him. All of this, all of the Old Testament is pointing to one person, and it could have only been fulfilled one way. Jesus alone is prophecy fulfilled. Nobody else, nobody else can claim that they're that cornerstone. It could have only happened one way. Jesus' birth is not just a celebration of a miraculous virgin birth, although that's part of it. Jesus' birth is a celebration because he was the fulfillment of all of this prophecy and all of this hope and all of the longing of the Old Testament where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives longing for this redeemer. He's here. He's Christ. Now, as we think about the pluralist, this religious pluralistic culture of our day, and how, how do we take something like verse 11 and, and communicate to that, that to them? Because if we were to you know, approach somebody and say, Christ is the cornerstone, they probably wouldn't say, oh, you mean he's the, redempt he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament? No, they they probably wouldn't understand it like the Sanhedrin did. Yet, it is important for us to be able to communicate that Christ is the fulfillment of all of Old Testament. And it might mean for us a little more than what Peter said. It might mean taking time to walk through some of the Old Testament passages and presenting Christ and the uniqueness of his fulfillment. fulfillment. But no other religion can claim what Christianity can, can, can claim and the uniqueness of Christ's coming to fulfill this. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith, not any other religious leader can claim to have any fulfillment of any prophecy like we see in Christ. Jesus alone is prophecy fulfilled. So we've seen Jesus alone has power to save. Jesus alone is prophecy fulfilled. And number three, Jesus alone provides salvation. This is it. 
This is the climax of this whole sermon. This is where Peter shows the ultimate answer to religious pluralism. Verse 12, Jesus alone provides salvation. This is the reason Jesus came. This is the reason why Christmas is such a joyful holiday filled with hope. It's because of what we read here in verse 12. And this is what distinguishes Christianity from any other religion. Look at verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Saved. Salvation in Christ, in Christ alone. We see it so clearly in a verse like this. The word saved is particularly important for our understanding of this verse. If you look back in your Bibles at verse 9, we'll see that the word was used in verse 9, the same word that's used in verse 12. It says in verse 9, if we were on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, that's the word saved. It's the word sozo in Greek, and it's the exact same word that's used in verse 12. And so in verse 9, Peter was showing that Jesus alone has power to make well, power to heal, power to save. And it's as if uh, these events, the, the healing of the lame man, is now functioning kind of like a parable for what he's saying in verse 12. That in addition to Jesus having the power to heal physically, Jesus heals spiritually. Jesus provides spiritual healing. The Sanhedrin, they were primarily concerned about the source of the power as seen in the lame man. And Peter didn't have to do this. He could have just said, it was Jesus, it wasn't me. He healed the lame man. But he takes it a step further and he says, this Jesus who has the exclusive power to heal the lame man, not only provides physical healing, but provides spiritual healing, and he's the only source of spiritual healing. There is salvation and no one else. There is no other name. The word name, remember, is parallel to this word power. There's no other power. There's no other source. There's no other hope. It's in Christ and in Christ alone. We mentioned before this, this mountain, a lot of people will talk about that has all of these trails that all lead to the same destination. And, and each, each trail represents a different religion. There's all these different ways, but they all eventually get to the same place, right? This mountain doesn't exist. We read in uh, Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, a passage you're probably familiar with, enter through the narrow gate. We could say the only gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. Who are these people? These are all the people who are deceived into thinking that, that their other, the other path they're on is leading to the same destination. But that isn't so. There's only one path that leads to the destination of eternal life. And that couldn't be made any more clear than in our passage before us today. For the gate is small and the way is 
narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. This trail is the only trail. It's the exclusive trail. And we might be reluctant to use this word exclusive. It's a word that, especially in our day and age, has been kind of pushed out. Language of inclusivity really dominates the discussion. And it's easy to allow ourselves to be influenced by so much language of inclusivity that we become hesitant to use words like exclusive. Yet we read here a passage that clearly, so clearly points to an exclusive gospel that can only be found in Christ. So how do we overcome this hurdle? How do we overcome uh, the difficulty that we would have with using the language of the Bible that presents the gospel as the exclusive and only message? Peter certainly had to overcome it, right? Because just two months before, he denied Christ to a servant girl. He was afraid what she thought. He didn't want to be associated with someone who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We must remember that Jesus is the only way to the Father, and this is good news. This is great news. We might be tempted to think, well, is it, is it really good news? Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be better news if there were many ways? Wouldn't, be, wouldn't more people be accepting of God if, if he allowed all of these paths to, wouldn't it? If he, if he made all of these ways good ways, wouldn't that be better news? Why would God limit salvation to just one way? The better question that we have to ask is why is there any way at all? If we truly got what we deserved, there wouldn't be a way. We would be left in our sin. We were all born, Romans 3, we were born with an inclination to sin that left us condemned. The wages of sin is death. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that you deserve hell? We know that. I mean, we, 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 we talk about it here from the pulpit. But do you really believe it? If we're trying to be logical, we would have to admit that there, there should be no way at all because we don't deserve it. So to say that there is a way is the greatest news that there could be, that God came to this world to give us a way. This is good news, news that should cause us to rejoice. We don't have to uh, sacrifice these animals like they did in the Old Testament. We don't have to reach moral perfection because we could never sacrifice enough animals and we could never become perfect enough because that sacrifice was done and God made a way. So before we complain about there being only one way, we should rejoice that throughout all of redemptive history, everyone who has been longing for this Redeemer, he's here and we have a way. That's why Christmas is such a joyful time of year, because that's what we're celebrating. One of the most beautiful statements 
celebrating this fact is found in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. Turn there with me, and I want to walk through this with you, just the celebration of what Christ came to do. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. In Luke chapter 1, we find Zacharias, who is John the Baptist's father. He was a high priest, and he was performing his high priestly duties. He went into the Holy of Holies. He had an encounter with the angel of the Lord. And he was told of, of the events that would come about, of his, the birth of his own son, John, who would be a forerunner. And uh, as a result of that, he was left mute. Well, his son John was born, and, and God opened his mouth, and he immediately began prophesying, and we have the words of his prophecy recorded here in Luke chapter 1, and I want to read them to you as we celebrate the birth of Christ, the purpose, the way, the truth, and the life. Listen to his words and how he celebrated this, starting in verse 67. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God, or blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. This is it. This is the one. This is the redemption that we've been longing for. It's here. Verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. The house of David. He's coming to fulfill the Davidic covenant. This is the only way it could have happened. This was the prophesied way. Someone who would come in the line of David. He's here and he's in the line of David. Verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. To show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him with fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Not only is he a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, he's a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Zacharias is prophesying this just months before Christ would be born. And, and he's showing that everything that the Old Testament has prophesied, everything that it's longed for is here, the redemption that we've been longing for, the second Adam, the one who would fulfill Genesis 3.15 to be the seed that would crush the head of the serpent, the one who would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, to be a blessing, to be a great nation, to be the offspring who would provide redemption, to be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, to be an, an everlasting king over the nation, to be a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, the perfect sacrifice, the one who would take away the sins of the world. Zacharias is saying it's time. There's only one way it could have happened. There's only one person who could have done it, and there is only one means of salvation, and he's here. It's Jesus. He's here. He goes on in verse 67, 
And you, child, now he's referring to John the Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Notice that John, John isn't referred to here as a prophet of the Messiah. He's referred to as a prophet of the Most High. Oh, wow. Who is the Most High? That's God. It can only be God. It's a title for God. We sang just this morning, sing we the song of Emmanuel. God Most High in a manger lay. Lift your voice and now proclaim, great and glorious love has come to us. We join the heavenly chorus, not because there's another way, but because there's the way, the only way. Zacharias concludes with a description of the Messiah straight from Isaiah 9. He says, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. When Jesus came, he was born that man no more may die. I love that line. Another song we sang this morning. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Have you found that way? Maybe you find yourself this morning trusting in another way. Maybe, maybe you're trusting in another person. Maybe you're trusting in yourself. Maybe you're trusting in your own ability to, to work your way to that destination. Maybe you think, if I just do enough good, then I'm on the right way, right? This isn't the right way. Morality can't save you. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth in a life. No one comes through, through the Father but through me. Christmas is an incredible time to celebrate the birth of Christ, but it's also a great time for us to consider, do we actually understand who Christ was? Do we truly understand the saving power that he offers us? The exclusive nature of the gospel isn't a message to be ashamed of. We shouldn't be ashamed to tell the world that there's only one way. We should be excited to present to the world, there's one way and I know it. Let me show you. Millions of people around us live with false assurance, false hope that thinking that they found a way, but it's not the way. Paul Tripp uh, sums up well, he says this. The way, the truth, and the life was in the manger, causing angels to rejoice, Mary to wonder, shepherds to worship, and us to have hope. As religious pluralism grows around us, Christmas is a time where we, as a body of Christ, affirm what Christ came to do, to give us life, to give us hope, to be the way to a savior a cause for us to rejoice. Let us find great joy knowing that God has made his way known to us through his son and through his word. Let me pray.
God, there couldn't have been another way. There, there couldn't have been another person or another series of events that could have transpired that would have provided salvation. It was only through you. So, Lord, we pray. I, I think especially if there's anyone in here who has not found that way, that they would seek you in your word and that they would turn to you in true faith and in true repentance. Lord, we pray that our Christmas season would be filled with the hope and the goodness of you. We pray this in your name. Amen.